Today on Uncharted Space, I learn about the apparently criminally underrated 2007 film, Sunshine. Later, Craig reveals a particularly unhinged conspiracy theory he has about the actor Alan Ruck. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to Uncharted Space. I'm Craig. And I'm Josh. And each week we're going to talk about a science fiction property that one of us has seen, knows, and loves, and the other has never experienced. This week we're talking about the 2007 Danny Boyle film Sunshine, which I have seen and know and love. And I know almost nothing about this movie except that it was directed by Danny Boyle. So I'm assuming it's a film about a gang of Scottish junkies, uh, you know, junkie astronauts who fly around the solar system trying to quit heroin. The most wretched, miserable, servile, pathetic trash that was ever shined to civilization. Josh, you are not alone in not having seen this movie. It was a box office disaster. It cost $26 million to make and it only recouped $34 million worldwide, which goes to show that uh, box office is not a representation of the quality of a film. That man was the biggest darn fool I ever met. He made an awful lot of money. Well, it's no trick to make a lot of money. All you want is to make a lot of money. So the premise of the movie is that 50 years in the future, the sun is dying. A team of intrepid astronauts are sent with a giant atomic bomb, which they're supposed to launch into the sun, and that's going to restart the sun's engine. That ship is the Icarus 1, and this takes place before the movie begins. The ship is lost. Nobody's heard from them. Nobody knows what happens. All they know is that the bomb was not deployed, or if it was deployed, it didn't work because the sun is still cold and the earth is still frozen, and we're running out of time. The earth's going to be dead soon. So they put together a second team called the Icarus 2, the irony of which is delightful. One of the major elements is faith versus reason, uh, but not in a traditional religious context. It goes way back to these origins of religion where, where the sun was often the first god that cultures created. And there is sort of a deification of the sun that takes place with certain characters as it goes through. But let me, let me give you this cast, Josh. It is a phenomenal ensemble. Cliff Curtis plays uh, Searle, who's the psychologist on the ship, Rose Byrne, in one of her earlier roles, she plays um, the pilot. Uh, A very young and very thin Benedict Wong plays the computer guy. Hiroyuki Sonata, who Americans will know as the bad guy from The Wolverine when he was in Japan, he plays the the captain. Um, So Rose Byrne's the pilot, but he's the captain. And then Michelle Yeoh plays Corazon, who is in charge of the life support. Mark Strong appears as the captain of the first Icarus One. And then Killian Murphy plays the theoretical physicist in charge of the bomb. That's right, 16 years before Oppenheimer, he had his first crack at being a theoretical physicist. So it was written. So it was written. And then you have a post-Fantastic Four, but pre-Avengers, Chris Evans, in probably my favorite role of his entire career, playing Mace. He's a 
fiercely pragmatic and ornery engineer. But I guess the important question is, is he super jacked? Yeah, <laughs> he he's super jacked because he's, he's post he's post Fantastic Four. He's got those Johnny Storm muscles. I need my Chris Evans jacked. I'll tell you what, in this movie, he is jacked both of body and of mind. <laughs> Which is one of the fantastic things about this movie is so often you have elements where characters are stupid and the plot progresses because characters do dumb things. But in this story, all of the characters are extremely intelligent. They're pushed to the edge of their morality, of their reason, and they will make mistakes, but they're making them for intelligent and reasoned reasons. You mentioned the Icarus 1 and the Icarus 2 the two being the ship that followed some years after the one. The first thing that popped to mind, also with the sort of religious imagery, is the infamous sci-fi horror film Event Horizon. Yes. Without giving away too much, do you feel like these are kindred movies? I liked the movie Event Horizon. And that being said, this movie could be described as Event Horizon if it were good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I yeah. Event Horizon is... A special film, uh, but I don't know that anybody has described it as good in the classical sense. So I will give you one example where the, the two films sort of share some common ground. Uh, you may recall in Event Horizon, towards the beginning of the characters starting to lose their mind, there's the, the young boy who goes into the airlock. Do you remember this scene? I do. And he depressurizes and his, his eyes are bleeding. and Yeah, it's really, really horrifying. <laughs> it's really horrifying. Yeah. And the way the sequence ends is that the airlock opens. Lawrence Fishburne heroically charges through. Okay, baby bear. I got him. I got him. Stand by, people. Stand by. In Sunshine. There's an incredible sequence midway through the film where as they're approaching the sun, the communications officer finds a signal from the Icarus One. And they're sitting around saying, oh, maybe we should go investigate it. And Chris Evans, of course, the intrepid atheist rationalist says, no, there's no way we can do that because it doesn't matter if anyone's alive. Their lives are not the mission. We have a payload to deliver to the heart of our nearest star. We're delivering that payload because that star is dying. And if it dies, we die. Everything dies. So that is our mission. There is nothing, literally nothing more important than completing our mission. End of story. He's right. He's right. Of course I'm right. Is anyone here seriously considering otherwise? Chris Evans' character is really the only one who, from the beginning, has accepted that this is probably a one-way trip. And the Cliff Curtis character, Searle, he says, no, of course we're not going to go for the people, but... The bomb we're carrying is entirely theoretical. We don't know if it will work. They would still have the second payload. And so the question is, does the reward of a second payload outweigh the risk of diverting course? And Chris Evans says, ah, oh, so we'll vote. And Searle says, no, this is not a democracy. The decision will be made by the one person most qualified to answer that question, which is our theoretical physicist on board, Killian Murphy, who is then forced to make the decision which will bend the entire arc of the film. The point is they get to the Icarus One, things happen, they're, they're in the Icarus One and the airlock, the sleeve is destroyed and there's only one suit. Chris Evans is there, Killian Murphy's there and the communications officer's there. And without missing a beat, Chris Evans says, we're putting the one suit on Killian Murphy's character, we're sending him across to the ship in space. 
and the communications officer who's the acting captain starts kind of losing he's he's like no i'm gonna go you're gonna give me the suit that is a direct order i assure you when i'm on board icarus 2 that i will do everything within my power to what shuttle back with more suits the airlock is ripped in half once we break that seal how are we going to repressurize and then chris evans like no we'll all go and he starts ripping off the insulation from the walls and he says we're going to wrap ourselves in this and we're going to go behind Killian Murphy and it's in that moment obviously just a move to dodge the captain who's losing it but Chris Evans makes it back across and it's a similar sequence to the the moment in Event Horizon played with slightly different bendings of uh, actual science and and both are are pretty gripping scenes so there's a, there's a sci-fi movie trope where the you know the intrepid volunteers in like a near future society head to space usually to save the planet from a natural disaster or man-made disaster, you know, Armageddon being one of these movies, Interstellar. A worse example I can think of is the movie The Core. It is uh, Aaron Eckert and Hilary Swank. Uh, it's actually very similar plot-wise, um, but the Earth core stops spinning, and so they have to drill to the center of the Earth in some sort of weird craft in order to detonate a nuke in the Earth's core to start it going again. The core of the Earth stopped spinning. How could this have happened? We don't know. Aha. Uh-huh. The point is, this is a common sci-fi trope, and I was curious if you feel like this film fits into that mold. That's an interesting question. I would say absolutely not. What you're describing is sort of the everyman having to do the sciency thing. Not necessarily, because in an Interstellar, they're like highly qualified people, but it's just the idea of self-sacrificing volunteers blasting off into space to save the world. So self-sacrifice is definitely a theme that bends across the entire film. The utilitarian ethic of the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one. In terms of the everyman thing, which isn't what you were asking, but it's what I want to answer anyway, the film dives into the arrogance that is inherent in incredibly intelligent, incredibly scientific minds, while at the same time teetering on the line that without that ultra level of intelligence and scienciness, there wouldn't be anyone to save the world from the sun going dark. So you mentioned this film's lack of success at the box office. And so this came out in in 2007, which was sort of like right at the very beginning of the Marvel movie era. One year before Iron Man, yeah. But then like as early as 2013 or so, uh, you get this wave of huge blockbuster sci-fi movies like Gravity and Arrival and Interstellar and The Martian, which were all critical and commercial successes. But, you know, also during that time, you have some like really beloved indie or cult classic sci-fi movies coming out as well. I guess my question is, where do you feel like on the spectrum where you have like District 9 or Her on one end of the spectrum and then franchise movies like J.J. Abrams' Trek or The Avengers on the other end and then Interstellar is right in the middle. Where would you put this movie? I don't know that I'm understanding the gradient that you're creating. Are you talking about sort of between soft science fiction and hard science fiction or towards uh, more cult towards more mass market? I think it's the latter. I think I'm asking on a a spectrum of indie to extremely commercial. 
I don't mean economically. I mean, sure. The feel of the movie. Yeah. I, I don't think Danny Boyle has ever made a film that does not have an extremely commercial feel to it. Those three films you mentioned, The Martian, Interstellar, and Gravity, I would say that this film meets them all in terms of the hard science fiction. It meets them all in terms of the humanity. It meets them all in terms of the action and outdoes all of them in terms of the emotional punch. Speaking of which, this film also contains one of the best scores for film ever written. One of the things I'm noticing as I'm looking at the top part of the Wikipedia page for this film, I'm avoiding scrolling down lest I encounter spoilers, um, but I am seeing the Danny Boyle, Killian Murphy, Alex Garland connection. Um, and there's one other movie that I can think of with that threesome. Yes. Uh, being the great zombie film, 28 Days Later. The chimps are infected. They're... They're highly contagious. They've been given an inhibitor. Infected with what? In order to cure, you must first understand. Infected with what? Rage. Obviously, this is not a zombie film, but do you feel like these two movies exist in the same universe? (laughs) Maybe they hurled all the zombies into the sun and that's why it's dying. I can broaden that question if you want. Oh, broaden away. So the question is actually, could you headcanon Sunshine existing in the same universe as another sci-fi film or series or book or whatever, either as like a prequel or somehow just otherwise sharing the universe? That's a very interesting question. Um, It could certainly exist in the same world as The Martian. I wouldn't necessarily put it with any science fiction that isn't super grounded in reality and, and as a direct offshoot of our present world. Apart from what we've already talked about, is there anything that was borrowed from other films, either of the same era or older films, you know, thematically or aesthetically or story-wise? I'm always interested in in influences that one work has on another. For sure. I think the biggest influences from Kubrick's 2001, A Space Odyssey, you have elements of what it would be like to exist in space with the actual physics that we have. You have elements of AI, although in this one, the AI is entirely benevolent and much more akin to Siri than Hal. I, I wanted to say your, your, your question about head canon, Josh, my personal head canon is that every single character played by Alan Ruck is the same person. This is, this is ridiculous, okay? I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, with, I'll go. Shit. Uh, all the way from Cameron in Ferris Bueller's Day Off through Connor Roy in Succession. I mean, that's remarkable. They must have put him in stasis long enough for him to be the captain of the Enterprise B in Star Trek Generations. We'll have to keep our distance. We don't want to get pulled in two. Tractor beam. Mm-hmm. Tractor beam? We don't have a tractor beam. You left space stock without a tractor beam. It won't be installed until Tuesday. It fits, if you ask me. Who but Connor Roy would have the money and desire to freeze himself cryogenically long before they knew you could thaw you out? Okay, politically... A lack of real-world experience has sometimes been leveled at me. Therefore, I wouldn't be uninterested in coming in and hitting three, four major achievements and then getting out. Well, I think I've learned a couple of things today, Craig. The first thing is that I am wholly unable to conceive of a work of art without framing it in the context of other works of art. Uh Uh-huh. 
nothing can stand on its own. And I think that that's probably a major character flaw. Mm. But uh, the other thing that I've learned today is that I definitely want to see this film. And in fact, I can't believe that I haven't given that it's right up my alley. I think, Josh, we should make a one-time exception and have a second episode where I rewatch it, you watch it for the first time, and we just, you know, put a big spoiler banner on it and, and, and get into it. There's so much to get into with this film, and I've not even scratched the surface. Well, Craig, as always, it's been a pleasure talking about science fiction with you. Thanks for letting me prattle on. I can't wait to see the next thing that we're going to talk about here on Uncharted Space. All this talk about sunshine makes me think of the Star Trek episode, A Small Light, um, where Picard um, plays the uh, the piccolo. Is it the piccolo he plays? Yeah, and you're going to get a lot of angry nerd letters about that one if you don't correct the title. Oh, okay. What's the title? <laughs> the Inner Light. The Inner Light. Okay. Yeah, that was a, that was an episode about uh, the sun going Nova and the society trying to save itself from that. Are you kidding? It was? Yeah. All I remembered was Picard with the with the not piccolo. Super fucking relevant to this movie. Super fucking relevant. <laughs> <laughs>